This is a podcast from ABC Radio Overnights. I'm Rod Quinn. At first glance, it might seem that the hit play Harry Potter and the Cursed Child and the stage adaptation of the Swedish vampire movie Let the Right One In may not have all that much in common. However, both of them are plays that have been adapted from other sources, both of them are about children at school, both are being staged in Australia, and both have been written by Jack Thorne, who is our very special guest this morning. Jack, good morning and welcome to the Overnights program. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really grateful to talk to you. Given its popularity, Harry Potter, it seems to me, would have been the obvious choice to write a play about, but not let the right one in. Where did that <laughs> Where did that idea come from? Did you watch that movie, the original Swedish movie, because I know it's been remade as well. Did you watch that movie and think, this really needs to be a stage show? You know what? Both were given to me. Both projects were given to me by the same person, who is John Tiffany, who directed the original production of Let the Right Run In and who directed uh, Harry Potter and the Cursed Child. And my faith in him is so absolute that when he suggests anything, I go, yeah, no, that'll work. Uh, and so when I first delved into both shows, my response was total horror because I'd sort of said yes before I really thought about it. And then you discover theatricality and then you're taken by that theatricality through the whole play. Both scripts contain a lot of stage directions that are almost impossible to do. But I had great joy in writing them because I thought I was only writing them for John and uh, only saying, you know, and now someone gets strung up on a tree mm. um, and has their throat cut. Now it's being done by Darlinghurst and I'm, I'm so delighted it is. We should point out that somebody being strung up on a tree and having their throat cut is not in Harry Potter, it's in Let the Right One In, <laughs> just in case people are worried about taking their kids to see it. But one of the things that became obvious to me watching the Harry Potter play is that nothing is now impossible on stage. Things happen in that show that I did not think possible. Yes, in a movie with their CGI, I did not think it could possibly happen on stage. Oh, it's incredible. And I can't tell you the excitement of being in that rehearsal room where the impossible was being made possible. Uh, uh, we were in there for about six months in a little space in East London. And it was it was just glorious, the whole process of it. As a writer, when you are watching someone else's work, whether it be Harry Potter, whether it be the Let the Right One In movie, are you thinking, I'd do that differently? I might do that better. What are you thinking? I sometimes am, and then I realise how stupid I'm being. No, I'm mostly, I mean, I'm a very uncritical viewer. I, I tend to watch most things and have a really nice time. So I don't, I don't really kind of sit there thinking anything other than, oh, that's good. But when I then come to adapt it, uh, that's when the trouble starts. And I do start to just kind of unpick and rethink and, and redo and try and find my own way into the story. What I was thinking about also when I was watching Harry Potter is that part of the audience knows everything about the story. There was a, a boy in front of me who was about seven or eight years old and someone was trying to ask him, well, what do you think is going to happen in the end? He says, I know what's going to happen in the end. I know everything about Harry Potter. So <laughs> half of the audience knows everything and all the ins and outs of these characters and a large part of the audience probably doesn't. How does that affect your writing? But yeah, you've got you've always got to write with two hats on. That's particularly true of Harry Potter. That Harry Potter and the Cursed Child, at its heart, is the story about is a story about parenting, and it's a story of that your own biography 
playing a role in the biography of your child and how you resist the temptation to think that the pain you suffered will necessarily be the pain they suffer and how you resist imposing your pain on your kid. And, and Harry struggles with that all the way through the play. And, and so Albus has his own things to overcome. And so you think, well, that's the story that people who don't necessarily know Harry Potter will follow, you know, that they'll follow that story. They'll follow that father-son story all the way through it. And then everyone else, it's about the details of it. And I'm a Potterhead and spending time with J.K. Rowling and asking her questions about how she saw these characters and what she saw these characters doing and what's true between the lines of this, that and the other was incredibly exciting for me. Uh, and uh, and hopefully some of that excitement gets translated onto the page for audiences who are coming to Harry Potter with the weight of uh, knowledge um, behind them. So when you're writing or adapting someone else's work, and that person is right there with you. And I know it's obviously her characters, but you had to create that story. What license are you given to do what you want? Do you have to run it by her or did you have to run it by her? Because there are some plot points, especially later on in The Cursed Child, that changes the whole way that maybe you look at the Potter family. Did you have to run everything past her? Uh, yeah, absolutely. Uh I didn't have to, I wanted to. She holds the flame and I was given the opportunity to hold a, a box of matches for a while. Uh, no, she's she's incredible and, and she was incredibly generous to me through the whole process. One of my central desires, because of my own experience of schooling, was what if someone went to Hogwarts and didn't have a very good time, which wasn't a story she told in Harry Potter, you know, that... that yeah. Harry had his ups and downs, but fundamentally had a great time at, at Hogwarts. And, and that would be true for virtually everyone there, minus perhaps Draco. And with Albus and Scorpius, I wanted to tell a story of, of two kids that struggle there and two kids who aren't necessarily being given the help they need there. You know, and with Scorpius, you know, Scorpius was a, a sort of slightly more open book because she hadn't talked about him much in that final chapter. So I put a lot of myself in Scorpius. Scorpius is a lot nicer and more charming and more interesting and funnier than I am. But I put a lot of who I was into Scorpius, you know, and, and she very graciously gave space for that and, and actually encouraged it. Mm. And when it came to questions as to Harry's journey in particular, and, you know, in that latter part of the play where he's really confronting his own demons she actually really lent in at that point and really helped us find our way through it and with his anger with Dumbledore and his way of uncovering his own truths. She was very much in favour of all that and loved being part of it. should point out Scorpius is Draco Malfoy's son and he is Albus Potter, Harry Potter's son. Uh, they are best friends at Hogwarts. Um, also, and I couldn't help but think when I was sitting there in the audience watching it, is that for some of the children, if not all of the children in the theatre, that this will be their first visit to a theatre. Did you take that into consideration as well, that they are going to go see this show and think that all theatre should be this good? <laughs> well, I think a, a, lot, a lot of theatre is that good, if not better. And, um, and, and, and yeah, we took that very seriously, that John Tiffany has this phrase, John Tiffany, who directed the show, has this phrase that he says, you know, the, the thing that he hates most is people saying that they should go to the theatre more because there should never be an obligation to go to the theatre. It should be a desire. 
and our competition is not necessarily with um, with other stage shows. It's with playstations. And the beautiful thing about Harry Potter is that you know historically, you know, we've been going now for six years. Historically, people have then gone on to see other shows and have got involved in other theatre. And you know, and if you go to Harry Potter and then you go, well, I'm going to try Hamilton next. You know. Um, uh, you know, slowly but surely, you'll be you'll be dragged into it, and and sooner or later, you'll be you'll find yourself seeing the cherry orchard and and finding delight in that too. You know, and and that is glorious, and may it be replicated the world over. Did you have that experience? Was there a play that you saw or a musical that you saw when you were young that had a defining effect on the fact that you obviously wanted to become a writer, but also that you would fall in love with the theatre? I did Joseph. Uh, and the Telecolor Dreamcoat at school when I was six, seven, eight, something along those lines. So I was always like, uh, I loved it. There wasn't any sort of like pulling me in. It was like doing stuff at school and slowly just kind of like dragging myself up to other stuff. So I'm afraid I was, I'm one of these writers, although I don't present as such, that was was an actor first. Uh, and right. uh, and I always loved performing. And so uh, I um, I went to see plays initially with that hat on but my exploration was more of you know that 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 where I lived we got certain amounts of theatre and then I got to go to London and suddenly the possibilities of what theatre could be you know exploded in front of me and um and that was that was my experience of of growing up in theatre. Jack Thorne is our guest is the playwright of Let the Right One In and Harry Potter and the Cursed Child which is on in Melbourne there were very young children in the audience for Harry Potter. Did that also affect how you wrote the story? Because the sorts of things that you include, these are very, very dark, dark stories about a a, a man witnessing, I don't want to give away too much, obviously, but a man witnesses something horrific that happened in his family life. I mean, this is really upsetting stuff for some people. What do you have to keep in mind when you're writing that? And our initial guidance was that you should be nine, or, nine and three quarters, or older, which is a, mm-hmm. uh, a you know a number that has yeah. a lot of relevance in the um, in the Harry Potter world, and so we wrote it. You know, we didn't we don't show anything that is extremely triggering. We hope, but we do tell us hopefully a sophisticated story about loss. And by the time kids are ten, a lot of people have had an experience with that. The event, the the fictional event that changed my life was ET. I've got be good tattooed on my wrist my son is called elliot yeah uh, i'm a total et obsessive and uh, and i watched et when i was eight and that's a film about divorce and i hadn't encountered divorce before but i knew that something was happening there what it was about for me was it was a play about a very lonely child which i was trying to work out whether anyone liked him and then he found an alien that loved him and suddenly his life made sense in some way and he was prepared to fight for that. And I think certain people will take different stories from it. And some people may find the end of the play very upsetting, but hopefully they'll get an understanding from it. And I really do believe in, I think the most profound lessons I've learned in life are through empathy and storytelling as a way of getting inside Uh, And challenging people's empathy, I think it's a really good thing, particularly at the moment. So with the Harry Potter play, it was originally in two long parts. Now it's been cut down to one long performance, about three and a half hours. What did you cut 
And did you think about it when you were writing the original that you thought, okay, if it ever has to be done in, in one long show rather than two long shows, that these are the parts that we might need to lose? No, I never thought about it like that. We, we were always writing as a two-part play from, I wrote a 60, 70 page uh, story document uh, at the beginning of our process, which was something that J.K. Rowling, uh, John Tiffany and I worked on together. Uh, and we looked at it all and felt like it was going to be too big for a one part play. And then just the, the longer the process went on, the more we saw possibilities within it for something smaller and more uh, efficient and uh, that allowed people to see it in one sitting rather than two. And uh, and then during the pandemic, we really kind of just went into the nuts and bolts of that and did a load of different rehearsals. And the rehearsals were trying different bits being taken out. And eventually we found the shape that worked. Uh, and we were all very, very happy with it. Uh, the two-part play still exists in London and is uh, doing very well there. And, uh, and I don't think there's a notion that it will ever stop being the two-part play in London. But around the world... The one part seems to work a lot better for audiences and we're really proud of what the one part play um, has in it. Did you ever see Nicholas Nickleby, the two-part adaptation of the Dickens novel? I did not, but Colin, who produced Harry Potter along with Sonia Friedman, was a producer of Nicholas Nickleby. So we always had that in our heads as, as, as a possibility. Because you've also adapted A Christmas Carol, which is on in Melbourne in November and December, another great Dickens story, although much slimmer volume than Nicholas Nickleby. <laughs> yes. I would think that there's a lot of similarity between the Harry Potter universe and Dickens with, uh, you know, elaborately named characters and fantastical stories and incredible coincidences and, and things like that. Is that something that, well, you talked about with JK or is it something that was on your mind when you were writing or doing your adaptation of uh, A Christmas Carol? Yeah, I did, I did A Christmas Carol after I did um, Harry Potter. It's a very different sort of story and a very different sort of storytelling and it's very very simple beautifully simple uh, a christmas carol but i do like fantasy and i do like adapting or or writing fantasy because i i think that thing of asking questions about who we are as people fantasy does it so elegantly finds different ways into doing it you know that um i i adapted um his star materials for television and it's incredible how how dense ideas can be and how they can be sort of just allow you to unpick your own existence and allow you to ask questions about who you are and what you should be and what this world should be. And I think particularly after the pandemic, we should be asking really big questions about ourselves and what we want our world to be around us. A Christmas Carol is a time travel story, much as Harry Potter is. Yes, it is. It is. And it's a and it's a, a reflective story, much as Harry Potter and the Cursed Child is too. Yes, it's about it's about reflection and about asking questions about yourself. And there's a moment in A Christmas Carol where in our version where the older Scrooge looks down on, on a on a younger version of himself and is asked what he wants him to be and they and comes up with a whole series of answers and then realizes that he doesn't want him to be me. And uh, you know, that that's, I, I don't want him to be me. And you look around the theatre at that point and there's a lot of, particularly men, crying at that notion that of, of regret, of choices. And Scrooge is given the opportunity to change himself. And he takes that opportunity and then he has to work for it. 
Jack Thorne as our guest. Now, let the right one in. The similarity, I suppose, with Harry Potter is that it's about children at school for much of the story. The problem that you encountered, I suppose, with Harry Potter, you solved by having adults play the children. So uh, Albus Potter and the various other children at Hogwarts are played by adults. What about in Let the Right One In? How do you solve the problem there? I think that the important thing is is not whether that they are real children or not, it's whether they play real children. And certainly with Potter, the notion is never that, you know, that it's adults playing kids. It's not uh, Blue Remembered Hills or something like that. It's that they're playing children. And thankfully, we've got actors that are beautifully able to do that. And and I suspect the same is true of Darlinghurst, though I haven't asked the, the ages of the company. What they're trying to preserve in the telling is a, a version of childhood and a portrait of loneliness. And in Let the Right One In, the loneliness is extreme and very, very damaging. So how far did you want to push things with Let the Right One In? This is a story about vampires. The main vampire is a 12-year-old who's friends with a boy at school. I mean, it is a very, very dark and disturbing movie, isn't it? Yes, it's a very, very dark and disturbing story. It was first a book and then it became a film and then we were given the opportunity to adapt it for stage and all three have very different versions of, of the story within it. For us, what was important was that it's about someone who is in Oscar, this lead boy, who hasn't got a structure around him that helps him. And then this person appears, Eli, and they give Oscar... A direction and they give Oscar someone to love who will love Oscar back and it's about their journey together as they negotiate their relationship and so it's a beautiful love story but it's encased in a lot of genre and a lot of jumps and a lot of screams and a lot of everything else but like with all really, really good horror, it tells a a profound and and hopefully beautiful story. I mean, surely the most horrific thing then for someone growing up is not to grow up in a loving family. And that's the case for Oscar. His parents have, have separated. The story is only partly about vampires. It's about bullying, very much like Harry Potter in a way, and the relationship between children and parents, isn't it? Absolutely. And it's about those that we don't help. And I think during the pandemic, we saw a version of humanity that wasn't very nice at times. I'm very involved in the disabled community. And in the disabled community, you know, disability was largely ignored. You know, that people go on public transport and they don't wear masks, which means that the vulnerable amongst us uh, might get infected. And if we don't start looking at and helping those that we've isolated, you know, we're going to end up with a lot of damage and harm. Thankfully, or maybe not thankfully, for Oscar and Eli, they find each other. But there's a lot of people out there that don't find others and are left in unhappy or abusive homes. There's a lot of fun in the play, but there's also a lot of truth, I hope, about the world around us. I don't want to spoil some aspects of Harry Potter, but one of the great things is a swimming pool sequence. Well, there's a swimming pool sequence in Let the Right One In. Do you stage that on... On the stage as well? Is that on the stage? Something triumphant happens at that moment. Mm. That's all I can tell you. (laughs) What's the reaction been from people who've seen the play, the stage version of Let the Right One In? 
I mean, my favourite moment? Uh, no, there's two sort of favourite moments. One is there's a moment in the play where the whole audience jumps as one. Literally, the whole audience jumps as one. And when theatre can be as experiential as that, I love it. And then the other moment was always the end. And we end on this sort of romantic, but maybe not romantic note. And you can always judge an audience by how they clap. And there was always sort of this just kind of uneasy pause at the end of the play. And I think that that is beautiful too, because it's an uneasy story. And so, uh, yeah, those are my two favourite moments in, in the play in terms of audience reactions. So a romantic but maybe not romantic ending might also be said about Harry Potter. When yes. you're writing that story, was that the idea at the start? And again, I don't want to give away what happens at the end. But you and I and anyone who's seen this play knows what we're talking about. Was that always there from the start or did that develop during the writing of the play? A bit of both. We started with this chapter that that Joe wrote at the end of her last book called 19 Years Later. And in it, she gave away a few clues. And one of the clues was that Harry Potter had three children, the second of whom was very uneasy about going to school and was worried about it, and who had been given the names Albus Severus Potter. So being called Dumbledore's name, Snape's name, and Harry's name, carried all those three names in him. And the relationship between Harry and Albus is the soul of the play. And so you take it from one scene between them to another scene between them. That's that's the journey of the play. And it's about how they've negotiated themselves between that and the place they end up together. And I think in some ways it's uneasy, but I actually think it's very romantic because they are able to meet each other at the end of the play. And they are able to see each other a lot more clearly and are able to grow from that point on. I, I'm never a fan of closed resolutions. I'm never a fan of, and now it's the end. And, and we've even resisted that in A Christmas Carol because I think that stories are about a journey between two marks rather than a complete arc. And that you move it between those two marks and you've told enough about people so that at the time of their second mark, they've changed so substantially that they're on the verge of another story and that you leave the play imagining what's going to happen next, rather than thinking you know everything that there is to know. Does that mean that there are more stories to come in the Harry Potter universe? Oh, no, 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 no. I've told the story, well, I've told the story that I'm capable of telling. There might be others that come after me, but this is, this is as far as, as I go. One of the things about it, of course, is that Hogwarts is a boarding school where both boys and girls go. That's unusual, isn't it? I think you're right that there are quite a lot of single-sex boarding schools, I don't, I mean, I, I wasn't educated in the boarding school and I don't really know that much about boarding schools apart from Hogwarts. Uh, uh, Hogwarts isn't as elitist as most of them in that you don't necessarily have to pass an exam to go. And so I always resist that notion that she's celebrating boarding schools. I think she's celebrating Hogwarts. And in my opinion, my country would be a lot better without them. But that's only my opinion. You have been incredibly prolific. Stage, screen, TV, radio, 
What are the delights of adaptations compared with original work when you're writing for all those different kind of media? Or you're given like a treasure chest and you're given the key to unlock it. And sometimes you're even given the people to talk to about what the treasures look like inside. You know, so whether it's working with J.K. Rowling or with Philip Pullman, you're given the opportunity to go, well, no, but what does that mean for that person or that person or that person? And and when it's a great piece of literature, that ability to be given that treasure box, I mean, it's it's like nothing else. I love it. And it teaches you. It teaches you so much about your own writing. It teaches you so much about your own humanity. And I always end up a better person, I think, at the end of it than I was when I started. What advice would you give people who are going to see Let the Right One In at the Darlinghurst Theatre? Go with an open heart. Go with someone to hold your hand or get to know the audience member beside you so that you can hold their hand and get ready for a really, really exciting time. Jack, it has been a pleasure talking to you. Thank you so much for the work you've done, not only for the the two that we've talked about mostly this morning and then a uh, Christmas Carol as well, but so many other things. People should look up what else you've written, and I'm sure they'd be familiar with it. And Jack, thank you so much, and good luck with what you're working on next. Thank you so much. It's been a real, real joy talking to you about it all. And that was another podcast from ABC Radio Overnights. I'm Rod Quinn. Thanks for listening.